You're listening to the Queensland Brain Institute's lecture series. This lecture is presented by Professor Adrian Rain, titled The Anatomy of Violence, The Biological Roots of Crime. Good afternoon and uh, welcome. My name's Jason Mattingly and I'm one of the uh, group leaders here at the Queensland Brain Institute. Um, I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which the University of Queensland is situated and pay my respects to elders past and present. For those of you who haven't visited uh, the Queensland Brain Institute before, let me briefly say a few words about it. QBI was established as a neuroscience research institute at the University of Queensland in 2003 and it provides state-of-the-art research facilities for more than 450 research staff, including around about 40 principal investigators and their teams. And all of them have strong international reputations in neuroscience research. QBI is one of the largest neuroscience research institutes in the world. It's dedicated to discovering the fundamental mechanisms that regulate the development and functioning of the brain in health and disease. And these discoveries are then applied to the development of new therapeutic approaches uh, in a range of different conditions, including Alzheimer's disease, stroke, motor neurone disease, anxiety and depression. A unique feature of QBI is the many different approaches that we take to understanding the brain, from the microscopic level of cells and molecules all the way through to entire systems. Our research also involves many different model organisms from worms and fruit flies, mice and rats, all the way through to humans. Another feature of QBI is its many public lectures and outreach events. Last week, for example, we had Australia's chief scientist, Alan Finkel, deliver the annual Merson Lecture on the future of brain research in Australia. And if you missed that presentation, you can find it on the QBI website. I would encourage everyone here, in fact, to check the QBI website regularly because we do have lots of these kinds of public events. Uh, I'd now like to call on Professor Janine Baxter, who is the director of the ARC Centre of Excellence for Children and Families Over the Life course, to introduce our guest speaker today. Adrian is one of our partner investigators and he's come to us from the University of Pennsylvania. He was here last week for our Life Course Centre conference, which was held in Sydney, and he did a wonderful keynote um, at that conference, and so I'm really pleased to be able to welcome him here again. Um, so let me say that he has a BA uh, and an MA in experimental psychology from Jesus College, Oxford University in the UK, and a PhD from York University. He's an internationally acclaimed criminologist with over 400 journal articles and 30,000 citations. His main area of interest is in neurocriminology, a subdiscipline of criminology which applies neuroscience techniques to probe the causes of crime and test innovative ways to prevent and control crime problems. His laboratory focuses on risk and protective factors for childhood conduct disorder, reactive and proactive uh, aggression, adult antisocial personality dis disorder, homicide and psychopathy. He's also interested in clinical disorders including schizotypal personality, you can tell I didn't write this, didn't you? <laughs> Hyperactivity, PTSD and anxiety which are comorbid with antisocial behaviour. So would you please join with me in welcoming Professor Adrian Rain to this lecture. 
Well, good afternoon, everyone, and I must say it's a real delight and a privilege to be here. Thank you, Jason, for the introduction, Janine, for setting me up here. And yes, I am going to try and bridge brain with social sciences here, together with you, because I think a number of the questions I have, I don't have answers to, and I'd like to hear your perspectives here, um, your thoughts, your opinions. And it's not just an honor to be here with some rather erudite, senior scientists in the audience here, but an even greater honor to be here with the next generation of scientists and educators that we have here from the International Baccalaureate Program. Right, so I'm going to talk about the brain and criminal behavior, crime, violence, antisocial behavior, that's what I've been studying these past years. But to give you a structure to what I'm going to be saying, um, I'll first of all talk about early health risk factors that raise the odds that somebody will become antisocial or violent. Um, secondly, what I'll do is talk about the brain mechanisms uh, which may be dysfunctional in these offenders who have been exposed to early disadvantage, social disadvantage, as Janine uh, outlined. Um, but then I want to turn to the implications of that body of research. What does it mean for society? And in particular, I'll turn to prediction, prevention, and also punishment as well. How will it change our perspectives? Let me start first talking about early biological risk factors, and I'll talk about health risk factors that raise the odds of violence and crime. All bad, you know? It's got a uniform on that baby, hasn't it? Just like some of the people here. Is anyone born bad? No. <laughs> You're not born bad either, you're probably born very good for all I know. No, nobody's born bad. That, that is laughable to say somebody born bad. But are the factors at birth that can raise the odds that somebody could grow up to become a criminal, violent individual? Yes, and I mean that literally, that a bad birth could raise the odds of that baby becoming antisocial. And that comes from data that we conducted over in Denmark, Copenhagen. So to, to explain the graph, um, this is looking at adult violence in, in 4,269 live male births from uh, Copenhagen, Denmark. And we have four groups. We have a group, uh, this group, the mum, did not have birth complications and she did not reject the child. Reject the child meaning she didn't want the pregnancy she made an attempt to abort the fetus, and the child was uh, taken away from the mum for at least three months in the first year of life, breaking the mother-infant bonding uh, process uh, at a sensitive time period. Um, so the no-risk didn't have either birth complications or maternal rejection. Birth complications we take as a biological factor. Anoxia at birth, for example, damages the fetal brain. So that's the biological factor. The social factor is maternal rejection of the child. This group just have the maternal rejection. This group, just the birth complications. And this group, they've got the double whammy. They've got both of these things coming together. So we see an interaction between a biological factor, birth complications, and on the other hand, a social factor, maternal rejection of the child. The key point from this is that life is complex, 
The causes of violence are complex. It's not one thing or the other. There's lots of factors which, when they come together, it can lead to an explosive increase in violence 18 years later. Uh, that was replicated. I won't talk about the replication studies, but, but that finding has been replicated in a number of countries throughout the world. So that's one factor I want you to think about. Early factor, birth complications. Another is poor nutrition during pregnancy. So there's a wonderful study by Richard Neugebauer. Um, it's the Dutch famine study. Um, and if anyone's, you may not be familiar with the Dutch famine study, but it's the end of World War II, and Germany were pulling out of the Netherlands here, and there was a food blockade on the country, such that some people had poor nutrition in the country. You can see the kids here had pretty skinny arms and legs during that time. And some mums were pregnant during that time period and had poor nutrition. Neugebauer at Columbia University matched them with a control group, same social background, for example. They were pregnant, they gave rise to offspring, but the difference is that those mums did not have poor nutrition during pregnancy. And what Neugebauer showed is that the mum who had poor nutrition during pregnancy, her offspring are two and a half times more likely to grow up to become what's called having antisocial personality disorder, which is a psychiatric label, really meaning lifelong criminal offender. So that's another very early factor that can raise the odds of later crime and violence. Another factor is smoking during pregnancy. We know smoking's a killer. We know it causes lung cancer, right? But we also know that if a mum smokes during pregnancy, her offspring are more likely to grow up to become a violent criminal offender. That's data by Patricia Brennan, now at Emory University. And this, in this group, the mum did not smoke any cigarettes during pregnancy. And this is the rate of violence in her offspring at age 34. This group, the mum smokes one or two cigarettes uh, per day, three to 10 to more than a pack of cigarettes a day. So what you see there is a dose-response relationship. The more the mum smokes, the greater the odds of her unborn child growing up to become a violent criminal offender. And that's after controlling for background factors. And, you know, there's more than 20 other studies who have shown this also to be the case. We don't exactly know if it's the effect of the mum smoking cigarettes and the toxins that cigarettes contain negatively affecting the fetal brain. We think that smoking also creates anoxia too. Um, so it could be the direct effect. Uh, and that's what we try and think. We try and think it's the exposure to this toxin negatively affecting the brain very early on in life. And as you'll see a bit later, that can raise the odds of uh, you know, offending later in life. And so that's another factor. What else? Well, uh, dr drinking during pregnancy. So you may be familiar with fetal alcohol syndrome here. Um, I want to highlight the research of Streisgut. These are older studies, but there are important points to make from some of these older studies because she got together 40, 473 babies with fetal alcohol syndrome or fetal alcohol effect. And th that's a baby 
who's been exposed to alcohol during pregnancy. You can tell from the craniofacial abnormalities the baby has. The small uh, uh, circumference of the head, the low seated ears, which is a minor physical anomaly, epicanthal folds in the eyes, lack of development of the nasal bridge. And this area here, this is the philtrum. There's a lack of development of the philtrum in these babies. The key point here is Dreisgott followed up these babies, and these are the rates, have a look at those, these are the rates of delinquency, police contacts, and arrests and convictions in these babies when they grow up into adolescence. And of course, there can be, there's a social context to this. Mums who drink during pregnancy are a bit different socially and psychologically from mums who don't. And that could be a reason why the offspring are more likely to develop criminal behavior in adolescence. But we also know that alcohol negatively affects the brain. So this is the brain of a baby that died at six weeks of age for reasons other than fetal alcohol syndrome. And that's the brain of a baby that also died at six weeks of age, but due to fetal alcohol syndrome. So we can see the negative effects that alcohol can have on the developing brain. And we believe, I'll show you a bit later, that brain dysfunction can be a predisposition to later behavior. And you know, this is where you come in for question time. I'd like you to take a look at that baby. And we can ask ourselves, several questions. You know, does that baby have fetal alcohol syndrome? Yes, it does. We can see it in its face, can't we? Is that baby more likely to grow up to become a, a violent offender? Yes, we've seen that from Streisgut's data. Is that baby responsible for the fact that its mum took alcohol during pregnancy? No, it's not. But will we hold that baby responsible for its crimes? You're nodding your head. Yes, we will. And so the question I have here, which I'd like you to think about is, is that justice? Is that your sense of justice? I'd like you to think about that and for us to circle back to that issue, especially in question time. I'd like your opinion. Also, this leads on to another issue, that if we don't hold that baby responsible, for its crimes in the future. Who are we going to hold responsible? You know, are we going to hold the, the mother responsible, right? For taking the alcohol during pregnancy that damaged the brain, that predisposed to later crime? Well, let's look at this issue of parental responsibility. So this is the case of Jamila Falls, Memphis, Tennessee. Jamila gave birth to a little baby girl on July the 5th. But the problem was the baby at birth tested positive for heroin and marijuana. And Tennessee had passed a law making it an assault of the mother on the fetus. And that's the word they use legally. It's an assault of the mother on her fetus. And so she's sent to prison for six months. She's given a six-month sentence for that assault. And again, I'd like you to think about where we go on this. I mean, do you think that's the right way to go, that we need, you know, more parental responsibility? Do we need better parenting for all children? Or in contrast, is this too punitive? And instead of ha uh, handcuffs, 
that Jamila Falls got, she needs help. You know, she had a substance abuse. That needs to be treated. Or both. Maybe we do need a bit more parental responsibility. And, you know, I want to come back to uh, a conversation I had at dinner last night. Um, I wasn't raising this issue, but the issue came up. And one of the people I was having d dinner with said, actually said, you know, we should probably have licensing for parenting because, you know, bad parents, they create a big mess in society. And, you know, it's sort of true. I mean, I was reflecting on this last night and I decided to pop this slide into my talk. There's a lot of abuse. And, you know, the person last night was reminding me that a lot of abuse in society, you know where it is? Is it in the church? Is it at school? No, it's at home. It's at home. And we have bad fathers and not so good mums, right? And I don't know what your perspective is on that. I think it's an interesting question. And I think we can have a for and against here. And I'd like your thoughts, you know, towards the end. The for is, look, babies have a right to adequate paternal and maternal parenting. They have a right to it. We talk about our rights. What about the rights of a newborn baby? We don't talk about that. Why not? Counterpoint is no way. This is a slippery slope to eugenics. We create a class-driven society where some people have the privilege of parenting and others do not. That would be just wrong. So I'd like you to think about that. Maybe we could circle back to that because I want to come back at the end of this talk to responsibility. But for right now, let's talk quickly about a couple of brain mechanisms which appear to be dysfunctional in offenders and I suspect uh, brought about by some of those early health risk factors that we've been discussing. I'm only going to talk about two brain areas. Sorry, Jason, I probably should pack in a lot more. It's, and it's way more complex than what I'm about to say. But that being said, and the students here know this, they know my study better than me, I think, because they've been studying it hard over the years. It's a study I did way back in 1994, but it's about murderers. Murderers are normal people who don't murder. Do they differ in brain functioning? So I scanned 41 murderers and compared them to 41 match controls. And the key finding from this study is that the murderers as a group had poor functioning in the very frontal region of the brain compared to the normal controls. You're looking down on the brain, the warm colors, red and yellow, indicate high glucose metabolism, high brain functioning. Cool colors, low glucose metabolism, low brain functioning. And, you know, if you know a bit about neuroscience, the frontal cortex, it's very much involved in regulating behavior, checking on impulsive behavior, regulating emotions. You can think of it as the guardian angel on behavior. And if that guardian angel is asleep, as it is in some murderers, then, you know, the devil can come out, right? And people can get killed. So that's why we think poor frontal lobe functioning can raise the odds of an antisocial tendency. And I want you to remember that because I'm going to circle back to the prefrontal cortex at the very end uh, of our discussion here. 
Uh, two important caveats are on this issue. Uh, first of all, not all murderers are the same. Um, Here's Randy Kraft, who was one of our 41 murderers. Randy was a serial killer who killed 64 people in a 12-year period uh, south of Los Angeles, almost without being caught. And you can see Randy's brain scan here in the middle. And you, what you can see is that he has pretty good frontal lobe functioning, right? He's not like the normal murderer who's lacking that prefrontal functioning. But I take him as the exception that proves the rule. Because here's a man who could carefully plan and regulate his behavior for these 12 years almost without being caught, right? And you've got to have something good going for you to be able to do that. You know, he was taking men out, he was getting them drunk, putting drugs in their drink, having sex with them, killing them, uh, clearing up the mess, and getting into work next day as a computer consultant. So you have to have something good going for you to do this, and Randy had a good frontal cortex, which in part allowed him to do that. It's not explaining why somebody's a serial killer, but the caveat is that not all murderers are the same. This poor frontal lobe functioning is much more likely to characterize impulsive, dysregulated, violent offenders, not the careful, planned murderers a la Randy Kraut. That's one caveat. Second caveat is this. We had another individual with a brain scan very much like Randy Kraut's here. Good frontal lobe functioning. The thalamus was activated here, temporal cortex and occipital. The point about this brain scan is that, as some of you know, it's my brain scan. The point to make here is that brain imaging is not diagnostic. It cannot be used to classify who's normal, who's a one-off killer, who's a serial killer. No, it cannot be used in that way. But nevertheless, we are still getting some clues about what brain areas, when dysfunctional, can again raise the odds. When we were only talking about probabilities, raising the odds of somebody becoming violent. There are no one-to-one -one connections at all in terms of the causes of crime. So, the prefrontal cortex, that's one brain area. A second brain area that uh, some of you will be familiar with here is the amygdala, the emotional amygdala. We know it's a key brain area for the generation and modulation even of emotional functions like fear and anxiety. Um, and one of my graduate students was interested in the idea that psychopaths, psychopaths are violent offenders or criminal offenders who don't have the same feelings as us. They lack remorse, they lack guilt, they lack shame, they lack embarrassment. They're not frightened about getting caught. And she was interested in brain scanning psychopaths and comparing them to control individuals. And what she showed, this is her key finding here, this is the amygdala, the key finding is that there was an 18% volume reduction in psychopaths compared to the normal controls. So the very simple, very simple idea, probably oversimplistic idea here, is that one reason why psychopaths may be, quote, cold-blooded, lacking conscience, lacking feeling for other people, is simply because the brain area which gives rise to some of these feelings is structurally impaired. The problem with brain imaging it's, is it's correlational. You take a bunch of psychopaths, compare them to controls, okay, 
they've got an amygdala abnormality. But the question is, what comes first? Does the amygdala impairment cause the later crime? Or could it be that living a, a criminal way of life could give rise to the brain abnormality? This is a question, again, I was talking about last night. To, to sort that out, you'd have to do brain imaging early on in life and follow those kids up into adulthood and see whether amygdala impairments early in life predict to future criminal offending. That's not being done. But what has been done, Jason, I don't know if you know the concept of fear conditioning. See, most like, I'm sure you know it, fear conditioning. Pavlov, Pavlov's dogs, it's association learning. Um, it's a bit of a difficult concept to describe, but think of it as anticipatory fear. If, if you're about to receive a punishment and you feel fearful, well, the idea is you've got good fear con condition. It's more complicated than that, but think of poor fear conditioning as a lack of emotion. Think of it that way, and importantly, poorer amygdala functioning. So we had this study on the island of Mauritius, um, where we were able to measure fear conditioning in 1,803-year-old children. Uh, you know, if you get anxious and fearful, you sweat more. So we have electrodes on the fingers of the child to measure this fear conditioning. I won't go into the whole paradigm of association learning, but what we found when we followed up the three-year-old kids is that 137 of them had a criminal record. So we matched them two to one with controls, matched them quite carefully, and then we looked back in time 20 years earlier to see, well, how do the adult criminals compare to the controls way back when they were just three-year-olds? And this is fear conditioning here. This is good fear conditioning. This is poor fear conditioning. The blue bars are the three-year-olds who grow up to be, quote, normal. They're the controls, right? And the green bars are those three-year-olds who grow up to become criminal offenders. You're taking a good look at that slide, aren't you? And yeah, uh, there is a difference there. It's a significant difference that compared to the normal controls, the three-year-olds who grow up to become criminals, yeah, they don't really show that fear conditioning. So let's get back to it. This is a marker for amygdala functioning. So we think that poor amygdala functioning at age three is predisposing to later criminal offending. But what do we do with those sort of findings? When my student published this in the American Journal of Psychiatry, they ran an editorial, which means like a critique of the work. Right? The editorial is written by a scientist called Philippe Sturzer, a neuroscientist, and this is what he said, born to be criminal. What do we make of this? Sturzer says, we have to be so careful. I mean, look, research like this could stigmatize young little kids. But I think we'd all agree with that. We've got to be so ultra careful with the application of any research findings. But Sturzer goes on to say, hey, but look, we're getting insights into the causes of crime. And Sturzer's last sentence was, so let's use that understanding to benefit the kids who are at risk and let's create interventions tailored to their needs. So the question I have for you in question time is, do we do that? Would we, for example, create a national child screening program for every kid at age 10 to find out 
which young kids have all the boxes checked? Social, psychological, genetic, brain. And then, after screening, do we then go and intervene to help benefit those kids, to keep them on the straight and narrow? Or is that just going too far? So that's another question I, I have for you. I want to stay with the amygdala because we also know it's very much involved in moral decision-making. And psychopathic individuals, they've got bad morals, as we know. And that's why they do all the horrific things that they do. So we were interested in this. And just to, before I show you the findings on psychopaths, just to explain the paradigm, we know that the amygdala, the emotional amygdala, is activated uh, when people make moral decisions, which are personal moral decisions. We know that from brain imaging. It's been carried out in many different labs. We'd put people like you in a brain scanner, and we'd give you a moral dilemma. We'd be scanning your brain, right? And this is the type of dilemma that you'd have. You know, it's the trolley dilemma, that good old trolley dilemma. A runaway trolley, it's going to kill five railway workers. This is you on the footbridge. Next to you is a large gentleman. And the only way, the only way you can save those five people is you, yep, you've got to push the big man off the bridge. And yep, he is a goner. He's a goner, but five lives are saved. So in the scanner, would you do it? Is it appropriate? And then we're looking to see what brain area is activated. And this is how we know. Now, I'd like you to think about this right now. Just think, what would you do? Don't say anything. I think you have Don't to push him me. off. But think. Okay. You know, it's five to one. I mean, it's a no-brainer. I mean, five, one, you do it. You have to. It's Kathy, it's utilitarian moral decision-making, the greater good of the greater number. We have to think this way. Or maybe, you know, thou shalt not kill. Maybe, yeah. But, you know, Kathy, the guy's big. He's overweight. He's probably going to die early of heart disease anyway. <laughs> you know, push him off the bridge and give his life some meaning. And his family will be happy. He's saved five people. Yeah. No, but, but it is difficult. It is difficult. And I know it's not really laughable. But uh, the important thing I want to ask you is how do you feel in that beginning process of making that decision? Many of us feel a little bit uncomfortable. Swap palms sweating a little bit. And it's because the amygdala is activated during these moral dilemmas. Um, the key issue I want to come to, to, that's just where the amygdala is. Just look over here. Um, my graduate student put people who ranged in degree of psychopathy into the scanner with tasks like that. This is low amygdala functioning. This is high amygdala functioning. Every red dot is a person. Not a big sample, but there's a correlation, a relationship. Meaning, the higher the psychopathy score, the lower the amygdala functioning. That's the finding. So, it's not just psychopaths have structural amygdala abnormalities. They've got functional amygdala abnormalities. And to me, and our group, this gives rise to a question. We've always known that cognitively, criminals know right from wrong. They know it's wrong to kill, wrong to steal. But, do they have the feeling the emotional feeling of what is right and wrong. Because we believe that it's emotion, in part, that drives appropriate moral behavior. And 
you know, if the amygdala is burnt out, as it is in psychopaths, um, if the amygdala is shrunken, 18%, and if the psychopath never asked to be born with a shrunken amygdala, then how moral is it of us to punish these psychopaths as harshly as we do? So that's an issue in terms of responsibility that I want to ask you about, and which I'll come back to again at the end of the lecture, and I want to hear your opinions on. Um, but right now, um, I want to turn to the legal and societal implications. We've got about 17 minutes to discuss this. Um, I'm trying to talk for about 45 minutes. First of all, prediction. Any implications on, let's say, brain imaging research on predicting future offending? Maybe. Now, by the way, nobody uses today biological measures to predict violence in practice. Like, those decisions have to be made. We use social factors to assess dangerousness. Who should we let out earlier from prison? Who to keep in? My question is, should we build in biological factors to help us make better predictions? I say that because we did a study, again on the amygdala, and this is my colleague Justin Pardini. Uh, what we did, we had um, male adults in the community. We brain scanned them. We created two groups, those with low amygdala functioning, the risk factor, and those with high amygdala volume. Actually, it's volume. I'm talking about volumes here. It's a structural brain imaging study. We then followed them up for three to four years and found out which ones had committed a violent criminal act. So these are the findings. Just focus your attention on the left amygdala. The blue bars have low amygdala volumes. The reddish bars have high amygdala volumes. That's the normal. This is the risk group, low amygdala volume. Here is the rate of violence three to four years after the brain scan. And high rates, low rates, really the group with low amygdala volumes have a 57% rate of violence in the three to four years after the brain scan compared to 18% in the control group. So these people with the small amygdala are three times more likely to go on to, predict, to, to perpetrate future violence. And that prediction is predicting over and above usual measures that we use to predict violence, like a prior history of aggression, prior history of violence, and psychopathy scores. So the point here is that Perhaps with neurobiology, we could lever better predictions than we have today of who in the future might be a violent criminal offender. My question for you is, you know, would that be the way that we would go in society? Because on the one hand, as I said, we have to make these predictions every day. Judges have to make a prediction like this. And at the moment, we're only looking at social predictors. What if we add in biological factors, combine them with the social factors, and we do a better job? But I think we do a more accurate job in making that decision. You know, and so part of me says, well, that would be the right thing to do. Let's bring in neurobiology into everyday predictions on future offending. The counterpoint, however, is that Maybe the government doesn't stop there, you know, and if we can make better predictions in the future using new statistical techniques, machine learning, and with increasing knowledge in the neurobiology of crime and violence, would we use that information?
to brain scan all of you and make the preemptive strike because some people here for sure probably have all the boxes checked right when would we detain you indefinitely in order to protect society because we felt we could predict you're at high risk for future violence that would be an invasion of civil liberties um, that would be terrible locking up an innocent person so that's the counterpoint that I'd like your opinion on um, prevention let's get practical here supposing bad brains raise the odds of bad behavior supposing it is causal then the question would be how can we upregulate the brain to reduce criminal violent behavior and there may be a lot of different biological techniques that we could use uh, the one I want to highlight today was highlighted quite some time ago by this young queen just wonder if anyone knows her name here Victoria. not Victoria she was good-looking too mind you she was a good English woman um, now, I'll give you a clue this is French Queen Marie Antoinette and what was she reputed to have said when the French peasants were baying for her blood and what did she say <laughs> I don't think she said that anyone remember what she said let them eat cake if they have no bread yeah let them eat cake and I think she's right nutrition may be part of the answer to reducing crime and violence. It's, it sounds laughable, but I can tell you it's not just food for thought, it's becoming food for court. And, you know, the judiciary are getting interested in this. Why? Why on earth would they get interested in it? Well, let me turn to data by Joseph Hiblin at the National Institute of Alcoholism, and he, he produced this data. It's homicide rates per 100,000 plotted against seafood consumption in 26 countries throughout the world. Yeah, so he finds a correlation, a significant relationship. You know, the, the greater the seafood consumption, the lower the homicide. I mean, look at Japan. They eat their whole body weight in fish every year, very low homicide rates, right? And then the Eastern European countries uh, low seafood consumption, high homicide rates. I know what you're all pointing to. You're, you're looking for Australia there, aren't you? And, uh, there we are. Yeah, not bad. You're not doing so bad. Um, so, it's... Right. So, um, actually, I gave a job talk at the University of Pennsylvania 11 years ago. And they said, this is phooey, it's phony. You know, United States is missing. So, they went and researched where the US was at that point in time with seafood consumption, and they were right there. They were right in between, <laughs> right on the wretched line, which, and they found that data out. But, but what you're getting at, it's a correlation. There's lots of reasons why these countries differ in homicide, of course. So to really find out, we need to do a randomized controlled trial. We need to manipulate one variable, see if it changes the other. So that's what we did out in Mauritius. Um, you can give kids a lot of fish, but I don't know about you kids. I shouldn't call you kids. You're really adults now, aren't you? Um, but, you know, we thought that kids wouldn't eat large portions of fish. And the issue with fish is that it contains omega-3, which is a long-chain fatty acid that's critical for brain structure and brain function. So we've got something that we think can upregulate brain structure and brain function. What we used instead, this again is in Mauritius, um, we used a fruit juice drink, which is 200 milliliters, about um, 
two-thirds the size of a standard Coca-Cola tin, contains a whole gram of omega-3. The kids got it every day, right, for six months. And um, that their antisocial behavior was measured at three time points. Zero months is when the study starts. We've got two groups, the omega-3 group. They get the fruit juice drink, and it contains a gram of omega-3. The control group, the red line, they get the same fruit juice drink, but it does not contain omega-3. That's the control group. They're randomized into the two groups, right? Two things happen. First of all, both groups come down from zero months to six months. It's a placebo effect, and we know placebo effects are real. But the second thing that happens is that after the treatment ends, the placebo effect ends, and the controls go back to where they came from, not quite, but almost, whereas the omega-3 group continue to go down even though the treatment has finished. So it's just one study, we need replication studies, but could it be that simple, as simple as omega-3 could upregulate the brain in a way to reduce antisocial behavior in the next generation of future offenders? That was a result we predicted. We also had a result we didn't predict. It's the parents' antisocial behavior, because we found a difference there too. So just to describe this, the parents are reporting their own antisocial behavior. And at the beginning of the study, the two groups are the same. I'll just move away from that microphone. Um, but what happens is that both groups, the parents' antisocial behavior comes down. Their kids are in the study. And remember, their kids, their behavior are improving in the children. So the parents' behavior improved. But at the end of the six months, the Controls, the controls that kids are just getting the fruit juice, not getting the omega-3. Whereas in this group, these are parents whose kids are getting the omega-3. And the parents' antisocial behavior goes down. Thank you very much, Laurie. Um, so what's going on here? And it could be two things. It could be that if you're a parent and your child is easier to deal with, then maybe you, 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 you know it, you're nodding your head. You chill out, don't you? Yeah, life is easier. You don't get stressed all the time and fly off the handle quite as much, right? I won't ask you if you've got kids. I'll ask you later. But uh, thank you for your smile there. Recognition. Yeah. Whereas, you know, so that could be a reason. It's called reciprocal parent-child relationships. The child affects the parent just as much as the parent affects the child. That's one hypothesis. The counter-hypothesis is that Antisocial parents steal their children's drink and they take the omega-3 and it's the omega-3 directly that's causing the reduction in their behavior. Nothing to do with their child's behavior improving. We, we could not test between those two competing hypotheses, but I am going to Mauritius in just two days' time to start another five-year study to try and tease out those effects. And this time, We'll do a two-by-two two design where either the parent gets the omega-3 or not, and the child gets the omega-3 or not. You know what, Jason? There's no omega-3 study that's ever done that. Those two sets within the same family. No study of any type, to our knowledge. Um, obviously, I know that this omega-3 story, it's a bit fishy, reducing crime, <laughs> antisocial behavior. Could be, we need replication, we need extension. Now let's turn to punishment. I'm on 39 minutes. I think I've just got time to sneak this in. 
I'm going to finish off here with a case study. So um, it's all about coming back to what does this say? You know, if, if these offenders are not, if they're not responsible for having a shrunken amygdala or a poor frontal lobe functioning, they're not responsible for that. And if that drives crime, are they responsible for their crimes? I want to give you a case study of Michael. Michael here. This is Michael. He's 40 years old. He's in his second marriage and it's stable. It's going really well. He's a school teacher, right? Like some other people here. And he's got no pride. But that's the only, that's the only commonality with Michael I can assure you uh, that you're going to see. Um, got no psychiatric history or history of any sexually deviant behavior whatsoever. But Michael began to change. I'll show you a short three-minute video where you hear from Michael about the change that occurred to him. You'll hear from his wife about the change, and you'll hear from his prepubescent stepdaughter. And then what I'll do is I'll continue the story and tell you how it ends. This is Michael here driving his car. I didn't see any more, didn't hear of any more, had no suspicions of any until February 14, which is Valentine's Day of 2000. And I went to put a card, a Valentine's Day card, in his, um, the carrier that he took to work with him every day. And in there I saw that there was pornography. And I was horrified and so scared because you can't take porn to school. You just can't do that. You risk everything. Michael was starting to act out of character in other more frightening ways. It seemed as though he was just always on edge, always angry. You know, he was taking pills every day because he was having these massive headaches. I mean, can remember this horrible argument we had on, on Thanksgiving Day where he grabbed my hair and, and actually pulled out, you know, some of my hair. And then it was at that point I called a counselor and said, you know, we need some help. In the months which followed, the stepfather, husband, and high school teacher began to lead a double life. A ball rolling downhill. It just gained speed. Pornography and strip clubs accelerated and expanded to massage parlors. But all of this is, is a desire towards grown women. And then in May, I found a magazine called Barely Legal, which showed young girls who supposedly are legal, but frankly look like they're 13, 14 years old. And I was absolutely furious. I took Christina, she and I went to my mother's to stay with her for a couple of weeks while I thought about what to do. Just sort of like this kind of look of what? Anne's daughter Christina was 12 years old when she too started to notice changes in Michael's behavior. Like I've always been really, really close to my parents. They would lay down with me at night before I would go to sleep and um, maybe like sing me a lullaby or something like that. And it went on until I was way old. I remember like he would lay down with me and then that's when it started. It would always happen at night. My wife started a nighttime class two days a week. She didn't get home until 10 o'clock at night. But when my stepdaughter laid down with me in her pajamas, I 
began to, not always, but sometimes, um, be a little more intimate with her than I should. And somewhere deep, deep, deep in the back of my head, there was a little voice saying, you shouldn't do this. But there was a much larger voice saying, what the heck, why not? So Michael was convicted and um, he had to either go into treatment or he would have to go to prison. And Michael, of course, got, chose to go into the treatment program. But in the treatment program, he began to sexually proposition the other females. So they threw him out. So Michael had to go to prison. The night before Michael was due to go to prison, he developed a really terrible headache. Although so would you if you're about to go to prison as a pedophile because you're the lowest of the low. So Michael uh, went to the emergency hosp uh, hospital uh, complaining about the headache and also complaining he was suicidal. So they had to admit him. And they put him on the psychiatric ward under the diagnosis of pedophile. And he was kept on the ward. But the problem is that Michael began to, again, sexually proposition the female nurses. And on one occasion, he wet his trousers. And the interesting thing is that he didn't show any emotion on that, any embarrassment or discomfort. So an astute neurologist had Michael brain scanned, and this is what they found. This is, you focus your attention here, you head on to the person, and they found um, a tumor growing from the base of the prefrontal cortex, compressing the prefrontal cortex. The neurosurgeons took out the tumor, and it was like Jekyll and Hyde, night and day. Michael was completely reversed around. He, the emotions were back there. He felt the shame, the embarrassment, the, what he'd done with his stepdaughter. And this time he was released to go into the treatment program again. And because all, all his sexual desires had gone, he successfully completed the program, and he went to live back with his stepdaughter and his wife for a happily ever after. And I know it's only a case study, but the temporal ordering of events is interesting. From normality to brain tumor, to pedophilic sexual urges, to resection, cutting out the brain tumor, the pendulum swinging all the way back to normality. It's an interesting case study. And it should have been happily ever after. The problem was after six months, the headaches came back. And his wife found child pornography on his computer. This time she divorced him because she just couldn't risk her stepdaughter living with Michael anymore. But the neurosurgeon brain scanned Michael again and found the tumor had grown back. So they cut out the tumor for the second time. And since then, for six years since then, Michael has been totally normal. Now, the, what I'd like you to do is imagine you're on the jury, you've heard the facts, and you have to make a decision. Is Michael responsible for his pedophilic behavior? That's the question. And I'd like you to ask it. I know it's going to be a gut response, but I'd like you to raise your hand. Raise your hand if you would, if you would find Michael responsible for his pedophilia. Please raise your hand if you would find Michael responsible. Thank you, hands down. And hands up if you would not find Michael responsible. 
Thank you, hands down. So it's about 70% versus 30% or something like that. And that's often the way that people would go when they see these data. The issue is, in the eyes of the law, in, at least in the United States, it may be different in Australia, I don't know, but Michael is responsible because he has what we call rational capacity. Legally, rational capacity is made up of two things. First, do you know what you're doing? Second, do you know that what you were doing was wrong? Anyone here can think back to the video and a little clue about Michael having rational capacity? Yeah, what was it? There was a little voice at the back of his head saying, you shouldn't do this. But a much bigger voice at the front saying, what the heck, why not? You're right, you remember well. Um, and yeah, so I mean, even Michael says, look, I'm responsible, I'm the one to blame. He takes responsibility for this. But is that justice to blame Michael? I think 70% of us might think, maybe not, he's not responsible. Um, and even Michael says, but now, would you hold to the same degree of accountability someone who did the same thing, but they didn't have the tumor? Uh-uh, Michael says, I don't think so. I, I sort of agree with Michael at some level. I sort of wonder, that lack of emotionality, I wonder if that predisposed Michael to the pedophilia, and that I wonder whether we should have an assessment of emotionality in courts of law in, when we are deciding responsibility, just like we, we take cognition into account. You know, if, if they've got low IQ, for example, well, that's a factor that would diminish their responsibility. Um, what I'd like to do is, I, I couldn't yatter on for a bit more, but instead what I'd like to do is just um, Summarize what I'm saying and leave some time for questions here. I started with the early health risk factors, which I would suggest constrain an individual's freedom of will. And the question I have for you is, the big one, do we have free will? Or is free will a dimension? Shades of grey. Maybe not 40, but several shades of grey. What about brain mechanisms? At least two. It's, it's way, way more complicated than what I've described, but two brain mechanisms which we think are dysfunctional in, in offenders, which may arise from these early health risk factors, is poor frontal lobe functioning and amygdala abnormalities. Lastly, you know, how do we fix the brain? That's a deep question and a very difficult one. Omega-3, who knows? Maybe, maybe not. Should we use neurobiology to add in with social factors to try and make a better prediction of future offending for the betterment of society? Or will that be a road to Armageddon? We've talked about parenting. And should we have better parenting and a parental license? I think also to summarize the words in, when Portia in the Motion to Venice said, you know, let's have mercy season justice. To what extent will increasing knowledge on the neurobiology of crime and violence lead us to be more understanding of why somebody committed an act and be more merciful and have less of a retributivist perspective on justice? Thank you for listening to the Queensland Brain Institute's lecture series. For more lectures or podcasts, go to qbi.uq.edu.au slash podcasts.